two passages of Scripture this morning. The first uh, few words from Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, beginning with verse 4 through verse 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children, and talk about them when you are at home, And when you are away, when you lie down, and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The people of God, the children of Israel, had been liberated from generations of slavery in Egypt. The problem with liberation is, now what? How how do you go from being slaves captured and held in a province in the world's superpower living on a reservation, a Bandistan, a ghetto, the land of Goshen. How do you go from that to a mature nation, a people of God? How do you build a society? The ten words of freedom of Exodus 20, what we call the Ten Commandments, are ten themes laid out by Yahweh to Israel about how to live so that they could make the transition from slave to free. But freedom is a curious philosophical category because freedom is not the capacity to do anything. Freedom is as much the capacity to say no as it is to say yes. Freedom requires of us saying that which we will not do in order for us to focus on that which we will do. And the freshly liberated people of God needed as a first order of business a sense of what wasn't, isn't in order to know what is and will be in order. And so, the first commandment. There is no other God. There is no other God. There aren't little bitty gods. There aren't great big gods in competition with our God. There's One God. No other gods. Now, this phrase is about as radical a phrase in the ancient Near East as one could utter. 
because all other ancient Near Eastern religions had a cosmology, a view of the universe that essentially could be described as a divine mixed martial arts match. The gods duked it out on a regular basis with each other. The storms in the heavens, the drought in the fields, all of these were signs of the gods being angry with each other. Yahweh comes to Moses and his people and says, that's all baloney. There is only one God. There is not a divine death cage up in heaven where the gods fight it out with each other. That's a unique cosmology. That's a unique way of looking at the world. Because what it says to the people of God is that there is order and sustainability in the universe. As crazy as our lives might be, there is an underlying order and sustainability to the universe. We may experience the travails of wilderness journey. The people of God had already bickered and fought over the lack of food and water, over the lack of order and control in the camp. They had already had struggles. They had seen the plagues in Egypt. They knew they lived in a crazy world, but... This first commandment, there is no other God, meant that underneath all of that, somewhere, there is order. There is sustainability. Because there's only one God in charge. And it means that the relationship between the people of God and God is one of, of priority. It's one of acknowledging God's great love. It's not a transactional, oh, if we bring this particular God the right offerings, He'll be good to us. No, that, it's no longer necessary. The, the whole point of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament isn't to appease God. It's to make relationships right. It's to restore that which was broken. And, and so rather than a transactional view of God, it is a God who says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a unique way of looking at the world. It's a unique cosmology. There's also a unique narrative because the gods of the ancient Near East were simply practiced what you could call divine fecklessness. They, they simply messed with each other for the sake of messing with each other. 
They simply duked it out with each other because it was fun. They simply fought for the sake of fighting. And the created order of the universe, not particularly important. There is no other God. So there is a different narrative. A God who seeks humanity. Not the other way around. Not, not a, a, a God who waits impatiently for humanity to acknowledge Him. But a God who seeks humanity. Who desires relationship. And so peace is at the heart of what God is about. God's desire, God's dream for being our God is to live in shalom with His creation. To take that which we've broken and ruined and destroyed and heal it. It is a different narrative than all the other nations of the ancient Near East. And I can imagine Israel hearing this the first time going, what? Huh? We've brought all kinds of little household idols with us out of the land of Goshen. Because that's, that's, how, we, that's how we roll. There is no other God, God says to Moses. Later on in the journey, a generation later, the law needs to be restated. The story of Israel needs to be recaptured for a new generation. And so the language of Deuteronomy, the second law, is developed. And the words of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Adonai Elehenu. The words in Hebrew above the door on your way out. This becomes the confessional core of the people of God. It's the prayer that God's people pray twice a day. Because this is a God who is not distant and aloof. It's a God who engages the senses. Whose first word to us is, listen, hear, pay attention. Hello? Yoo-hoo! Lord, it's our God, the Lord alone. God engages the senses and unites the cosmos. Not with thunder and storm and flood and famine. Not with unilateral control and anger. But with the invitation to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
because this shapes the soul. It unites us to God and to one another as His people. And that creates the possibility of a new identity. People of God. An identity that gets crafted and formed and honed and developed with an unusual pedagogy. Talk to one another about it. Develop, here it comes, a culture of conversation. So you thought I made that up, you know? It's right there in Deuteronomy. We talk to each other about the faith. A diligent pedagogy. A distinctive dress. Maybe the Amish, maybe the conservative Mennonites have something. I don't know. And a distinct, a unique architecture because you put on the gate and on the doorposts the Word of God. All of these things, this pedagogy, this dress, this architecture, conspire to help form and develop an ongoing identity as the people of God. Unique in the ancient world. Unique to this day. At the beginning of the sojourn in the wilderness and at the end, God begins with the same reality. There is no other God. There is no other God. And that means that that reality, that one God, frees us. Our experience of the universe may be, may confuse us, it may distress us, but there is an order, there is a sustainability to the created experience that can ground us in the midst of the floods and the famines, in the midst of the questions and the doubts, in the midst of the heartache and the brokenness, there is still only one God. And that is a God who seeks covenant with us, not just contracts from us. God is not particularly interested in transactional relationships. God's interested in transformational covenant with us. And that means that God is always in the business of engaging us. And He invites us to live as if that matters. So this morning, some questions for us to think about. What are the other gods you put in between yourself and God? How do we, in 2018, act as functional polytheists? We're good followers of the God of Jesus because we show up here on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock like we're supposed to. And I noticed today it was 10 o'clock instead of 10.15. Good on you. Uh, But there are other gods who compete for our time and attention. Who elbow Yahweh out of our world and who demand us 
What are those gods in our lives? What do we want to do about that? How do you experience the order and sustainability of creation? Maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe your world is so disordered, so fragmented, so messed up, so full of grief and pain and worry and anxiety that you just go, there is no order to the universe. All I can say is dig deeper. The old joke about the little boy who wanted a pony and found on his birthday a great big pile of manure and took a shovel out and began to dig is true in our lives. There is a pony in the bottom of that pile. Keep digging. Persevere. What do you think God is saying to you? with the great big pile of manure in your life. What is God's Word to you? How do you listen to God? How do you hear Him? And, and how does that listening affect the basics of life? If there is only one God, and that God speaks to us, what does that mean for us? And a final question. If you were willing to ask God anything, what would it be? Most of us are, I don't know about most of us, I would chicken out if I got the chance to ask God anything. If I had the chance to ask God anything, my throat would go dry, my voice would creak. And I'd probably squeeze something out like, so what was up with the Schleitheim Confession in 1527? <laughs> you know. And then I go, oh God, I blew it. <laughs> but if you were willing to really ask God anything, what would that be? God makes arrangements for us to do that. It's called the kingdom of God. And the, the one more thing this morning comes from someone many of us in this congregation know or know about, Richard Foster, who recently retired as the founder of Renovari Ministries. Richard says, may God give you and me the courage, the wisdom, the strength always to hold the kingdom of God as the number one priority of our lives. To do so is to live in simplicity. If we want to simply be Christian, brothers and sisters, there is only one God. Thanks be to God for His Word. One of the ways we remember God's work in our midst, one of the symbols that we take on is the symbol of the bread and the cup, the Eucharist, the, the thanksgiving feast of the Lord's table.
it's not turkey and it's not mashed potatoes and it's not my mom's giblet gravy. But in this bread and in this cup, we remember that there is only one God and that that God is at work in our lives. That that God creates order and sustainability and invites us into simplicity and healing and hope. And so we come around this bread and this cup not because it's cool or holy or makes us full of Jesus or whatever, or is good theology. We do so to remember. That's why Jesus asked us to come to this table frequently. To remember Him. To remember that He he makes visible the one God. There is only one God and we know Him best through Jesus who took on flesh and lived as God among us. And so we recreate the elements of the Last Supper He and His disciples experienced together. We we take bread. And we break it. And we say, this is Christ's body broken for us. This symbol reminds us that He was torn asunder for us. Because of us. It's a good catch, wasn't it? (laughs) And in being broken for us, He calls us in our broken state to be made whole. And he took a cup and he said, this cup, this cup of wine and us being good brethren in Christ, this cup of Welch's grape juice is, is a symbol of my new work. It's my life poured out. Poured out for you. To nourish and make whole our lives. And so we're invited to come to this table, not because we have our theology all put together, not because we are perfect, not because we have signed up for membership, not because we are whatever. We come to the table to take the next step towards Jesus and remember Him. Our practice at Madison Street Church is this is an open table. There is no theological test. There is no membership test. There is no age test. Families with children are welcome here. People who are here for their first time are welcome here. People who have been here their whole lives are welcome here. Everyone is welcome at this table. Uh, In a minute I'll ask... uh, our worship team to come up and share, and then they'll begin to play some music. And that will be the sign, that will be the the moment in which we're all invited to come to the table, come in small groups, eight, ten, 
That third group will have 20 in it. Come around the table. Listen, third group, there will still be bread and cup here so you can make a fourth group. Just saying. Uh, Come in groups. Tear off a piece of bread. Pass it around to each other. Send the cup around. Dip the bread in the cup. It's called intinction or grip, rip, and dip. And when everyone is served, eat the bread infused with grape juice together. As a symbol, we're taking the next step towards Jesus. So, Brian and Kelly, come. Let me pray a prayer of blessing on this bread and cup. There is only one God, and we know Him through Jesus, the One who was broken and poured out for us. And so we accept these gifts from Your hand, Lord, with thanksgiving, heal our brokenness, quench our thirst, feed our souls, pour over our lives, grant us a new way of looking at the world and a new story to tell. Through Christ we pray. Amen.